Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode will take a close-up look at a binge-worthy true crime documentary or series, and I get to talk to the people who made them, digging deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, the six-part docuseries, Trial by Media. The series spotlights how news coverage and public discourse around high-profile crimes have had a lasting impact on our criminal justice system and our culture. And along the way, we get a new window into six of the most fascinating and controversial trials in recent American history. I'll be talking with Jeffrey Tubin. He's an executive producer of Trial by Media. Tubin is also a prolific author, CNN's chief legal analyst and a staff writer for The New Yorker. This episode contains spoilers for Trial by Media, so make sure to watch all of the series before listening on. Now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode will sound a little bit different. Our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio, and we appreciate your understanding. I found out early on as a lawyer, it doesn't matter about the law. It's about... Being able to tell a story. When you turn a courtroom into a studio, you have to turn reality into a story with good guys, bad guys, drama. You've got to come up with ways to become part of the news cycle. I'm not saying the trials of theater, but court of public opinion is very important. Because if everybody in the building likes these guys, they must be the good guys, right? (laughs) Jeffrey Tubin, it's so great to talk to you. Thanks for doing this with me. Hi, Rebecca. I have something that I need to ask you, first and foremost. This is a series, by the way, it's outstanding, and I never say that unless I mean it. But this is a series about the intersection of media and reporting on true crime and public discourse around big trials and how that has, you know, influenced maybe the outcome, influenced the way that people behaved in the case. You are a television legal analyst. So I'm wondering when you embarked on this project, if you saw yourself kind of as a somebody who is in this space and, and how you feel about your role in that and also working on this project. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and to, to a certain extent, you know, I, I felt like this was kind of a this is your life story uh, <laughs> for me because I, I had covered some of these cases, some more intensely than others, but also just the issues that are raised by 
all of these cases about the intersection of law and media and to a certain extent of politics, you know, that's what I do all day long. And, and that's what I've done for my entire career. Um, it, it made me sort of reflect on the good and the bad of how media can illuminate, but media can also distort and how media is a uh, part of, of the legal system that, you know, judges and lawyers and law professors don't always acknowledge, but as this series makes clear, is very much part of uh, the real world. I just kept thinking about, you know, the observer effect, that theory in physics that if you observe something, a phenomenon, for instance, you change it. And that seems to be the case in just about every case and in so many different ways that it's covered in this series and other cases, too. Um, And each one of these cases, you can really see the roots of big cultural themes take hold. So, for instance, uh, one of the ones that that comes to mind is the subway vigilante, the Bernie Getz case. Watching that episode of this series, you know, you sort of see the very beginnings of the seeds of the the Black Lives Matter movement. You see the very beginnings of the seeds of the rise of the NRA as a force for gun ownership of citizens. How important was it to you to choose cases for this series that that reflect something much bigger that we can all relate to and see all the time right now? Absolutely. That was a key part of it because all of these trials, I mean, the great thing about all these trials is that they are interesting on their own terms. And often in, in most of these cases, it's not easy to decide you know, what, what the verdict should have been. So, you know, it has the traditional drama of a courtroom. You know, did he do it? Is he going to get convicted? At the same time, all of these cases have a larger political significance Sometimes it takes a while for them to come to fruition, and sometimes you can see it right during the trial. And, you know, you look at something like the Diallo case, which really was very much um, the the beginning of the modern Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. Or, as you mentioned, Bernie Getz, I think uh, it is not difficult to draw the line between Bernie Getz and Donald Trump. Mm. And then you get to the Blagojevich case, where in sort of this amazing conflation of events, Blagojevich has his sentence commuted by Donald Trump, as we finish this documentary, because his wife was on television on Fox News so much and appealed to Trump directly. I mean, you cannot have a more direct relationship between the media and the resolution of the case than went on in Blagojevich. Well, let's talk a little bit about Blagojevich, because, you know, he does something that a few of the characters in this whole series do is he chooses, you know, while his case is still active, pending, you know, after he's been indicted, he chooses to become more of a media figure, which anyone who's watched a single episode of Law and Order knows, like your lawyer always tells you not to talk to anybody. And as you know, a true crime reporter, I know you can't talk to people when their cases are pending. But he chose to thrust himself into the spotlight more so as like a proactive tactic. Can you just talk about that and, you know, whether or not you thought that was a good idea for him? Well, one of the tensions in this whole series is the question of, does it help or hurt for a defendant and his surrogates to go out and be public figures? As you say, you know, those of us who cover trials, we almost always hear from defense lawyers, you know, I'm going to try my case in the courtroom. 
I'm not going to try to get out in, in the press before the trial. And that is often the best advice. Blagojevich failed to follow that advice. And I think uh, it was a dumb idea, Mm. mostly because he was guilty. Mm. And the more he talked about it, the more it seemed he was guilty. You know, for all that the media is important, I do think it's also important to emphasize that the facts matter in these cases. What actually happened and what comes out in the courtroom? You know, sure, there are other factors involved, but the facts always matter. And Blagojevich was trying to fight a narrative that was presented in the courtroom. However, he and his family kept after it after the trial, after he was convicted and sentenced. And that turned out to be very effective, to be in public about the case. So the the real world is a complicated place. And sometimes the right strategy at one point is the wrong strategy at another, and sometimes vice versa. Do you think it helps someone like Blagojevich that, you know, America felt like they knew him? I mean, he was in The Celebrity Apprentice. I actually forgot the extent to which he became a media darling when all this was going on, doing all of these talk show appearances, uh, being self-deprecating, reading the top 10 list on the Dave Letterman show, you know, all that stuff. Um, do you think it helped him ultimately, though, that we just feel like we know him and maybe he did all these illegal things, but he lives in a state where there's lots of corruption in politics and he has that great hair and his wife really seems to like him. So, I mean, it did help him, right? I think the answer to that is yes. And I think, again, one of the things Trump has taught us is that if you are totally ubiquitous and you become a permanent fixture, people will kind of not focus on any individual thing or individual act and just develop a impression of who you are. And, and Blagojevich, you know, wound up creating this uh, persona of just sort of a lovable rogue that, you know, sure, he did some things he shouldn't have done, but look at <laughs> this tape. guy, he knew how to make fun of himself. <laughs> yeah. uh, he had a nice family, you know, nobody was killed. That, I think, did help him because when Trump ultimately commuted his sentence, people thought, well, he probably got away with something, but, you know, he's not the worst guy on earth. And um, my favorite episode that we haven't even talked about yet was one that I suspect is least familiar to the the broader public, which is Richard Scrooge. Oh, yeah. And Richard Scrooge was you know, a a healthcare executive in the Deep South in Montgomery, Alabama, who was involved in a financial fraud. And he seemed awfully guilty to me. (laughs) But his lawyers created this incredible media offensive around the case in in using in the most transparent, cynical way, uh, efforts to ingratiate themselves with the African-American community, which was very heavily represented on the jury. And that persona, which as far as I could tell, was completely fake, Hmm. uh, was invented by his lawyers, seemed to work like a charm. Yeah. That he, um, you know, managed to create a persona for himself, for the jury, both inside the courtroom and in the larger media environment that made him a far more sympathetic figure than he deserved to be. So, so I think, you know, in that respect, 
the media strategy was an unbelievable success. That was more than a media strategy, though. That was a cult of personality strategy to an extreme degree. Basically, this rich white guy uh, was able to, through reinventing himself as both a televangelist and an ally of a black religious community in these black churches, able to then portray himself publicly as one of the oppressed, which was extraordinary to me. Can you talk about that? Well, it, it, and, and, you know, I, I, we shouldn't love one child more than any other, but I, I really <laughs> do think the, the, the Scrooge documentary is my favorite, both because the story is completely surprising and his two lawyers, his two defense lawyers who are interviewed at length in the documentary are just so hilariously transparent <laughs> yes. in their uh, effort, you know, in to, to, to show what was really going on, which was... We knew this was going to be a largely black jury pool. So we decided to reinvent Richard Scrushy as this Montgomery, Alabama civil rights activist. And Scrushy joined this black church. He regularly appeared there. He had a television show uh, with his wife that you know reflected sort of these newly discovered religious values. So, you know, the the cynicism. And the transparency of what the defense lawyers were doing in the Scrooge case was almost too sublime to believe. And I said, wow, folks, did you hear all this stuff that this government said in this case? Good gracious, alive. It doesn't sound like we stand much of a chance. Stop right there. So now I'm playing to that role of we're the underdog. And because everybody likes an underdog. It worked. And he got acquitted in that case. And to see how that worked and to have these really funny lawyers, uh, one of whom was African-American, one of whom was white, um, how they put that strategy into effect was just delicious. It was. And it was also the, the postscript to that was delicious. One of his lawyers was later indicted himself, right? And then uh, Scrooge still maintains this like televangelist personality all these years later. And I'm like, why are you still doing this? I mean, maybe he just, he came to believe his own character to actually be true. He, he did. But although, as you notice in the postscript, he was tried again and ultimately convicted. Right, right. So, his act wore thin eventually. <laughs> and again, I, I, I point out that, you know, the facts do matter. You know, the message of this series is the facts are certainly not the only thing that matters, that uh, marketing uh, matters too. One of the things that's so fascinating to me about this series, you know, really are the choices of cases. And they are big touchstone cases that like really point to a moment. It's really easy to set up context around them because it's just so stark. And I, I want one of my favorite episodes of the series. I love the Scrooge one too, I'll be honest. But one of my favorite episodes is the one about Bernard Getz, the sub, so-called subway vigilante in New York. I remember this case very well. I grew up in New York. I was a kid when it happened. But what, the thing that I forgot uh, was once again, how Getz to a different result also became a media darling at the time. There might be no more like 1980 shot than Bernie Getz sitting on a couch with Barbara Walters eating Chinese food. 
pleading his case and sort of talking about all the reasons why he shot these four young men. But his choice to become more public and go out and talk to the media and kind of be out there did not do him any favors in terms of the public perception of him the way that it did these other guys. It it didn't, but Bernie Katz really touched a chord in New York. You know, I, I'm also from from New York, and I also grew up riding the subways. And particularly in the '80s, you know, New York has changed a lot since the '80s. But New York was a dangerous place, and those of us who rode the subway and those of us who walked the streets um, were sick and tired of crime. And crime was just pervasive and scary, and Getz spoke to a, an anger that was only barely below the surface in New York. And that's why uh, he had a, uh, I mean, it had a lot of people who were sympathetic to him. But he also revealed himself to be a racist. I mean, with his own words, you don't have to scratch too deep to find, you know, racist statements. You know, he said racist things in court. Right. And, and you know, th- that's why the Getz case to me um, is this clear legal premonition of Donald Trump. I, mm. I kept thinking of Trump, Trump throughout watching it because this whole notion of, you know, white rage and, you know, we're sick of these privileges being given to these black people and we, we need to take matters into our own hands and the legal system is too slow and Uh, bends over backwards in favors of defendants. You know, a lot of the rhetoric you heard from Bernie Goetz was not all that different from what we've heard from Donald Trump. And uh, even though Goetz himself doesn't, you know, fare ultimately all that well in the legal system, there is a resonance that that case has politically that has been pretty successful. I agree. I mean, it's one of the first times you really hear a figure like like Getz himself talking about the distrust of the media and being given a platform by the media to talk about distrust of the media. I mean, that's certainly I think you can draw direct ties to 2020 there. A lot of public discourse over things like jury selection. There's an amazing clip of Ronald Reagan. President Reagan said he could not condone what Getz did, but he understands the frustration of people who are constantly threatened by crime. It seemed that we got overzealous in protecting the criminal's rights and forgot about the victim. I mean, a lot of threads that I think speak directly to politics. You're not wrong about that. And and um, the, the cast of characters is one, and that's that comes up in several of these documentaries. You know, people who wind up being famous for other things. You know, Bernie Getz's main antagonist mm. was the Reverend Al Sharpton. That's right. In, in the very early uh, incarnation. Uh, with very different hair than he has now. <laughs> and, um, and, and Curtis Sliwa uh, yes. was um, someone who's probably not familiar to non-New Yorkers, but led something called the Guardian Angels, which was essentially a vigilante group that was walking the subways, uh, protecting people. And, and that tension between Curtis Sliwa and Reval is just such a premonition of so much that is to come in our politics. You know, one of the most stunning scenes in that episode, and really in the case, was when the guardian angels were allowed to do that super prejudicial demonstration in the courtroom. 
Getz's lawyer recreated the shootings with the aid of a ballistics expert. The four guardian angels were placed in positions where the defense says the four teens were located when they were shot. A private investigator played the part of the so-called subway gunmen. So I told the guardian angels, act the way these guys act. Act like thugs, like we see it all the time on the trains. Mad-dogging him and eye-fornicating him. The judge, who should never have allowed that to begin with, was like really fascinated at this. The court was fascinated at this. And then Waples was screaming at the judge, what are you doing? You can't allow this. It's going to prejudice the jury. Oh uh, <laughs> what did you think I, of that? I, I mean, I mean <laughs> you know, that's the other thing that's so great about this series. And, and this has been a big part of my own career is that, you know, I've written books about uh, O.J. Simpson, about Monica Lewinsky and that, that whole scandal. And one of the things people always say when you're writing on one of these subjects is that, oh, we know that story already. No, you don't. Yeah. No one remembers the details of these stories. And that ridiculous demonstration in the courtroom, which basically turned Bernie Getz into this victim, um, was just an example of how he was able to manipulate the legal system in, in a way that was that was really shocking. You know, one of the things I think a lot of people think they remember but probably don't remember super well is the era of super trash talk TV. Uh, you have an episode in the series about Jenny Jones and the murder case that came from an episode of the Jenny Jones show. And, you know, as somebody who's been watching TV my entire childhood and adult life, I thought I remembered just how trashy the Jenny Jones show was and how inflammatory, you know, the, the, the prodding was of guests on that show and how people were intentionally put. And I know there's still shows like this on TV, so I'm not pretending like it doesn't exist anymore. But the incredibly heightened sense of we can do whatever we want because it's entertaining that came from this era of television. Can you just talk about that as somebody, again, who's on TV? Like, what do you think when you watch that? Uh, basically, this was an episode about sort of, you know, my secret crush. You know, who's your secret crush? And um, there, there are three people on the stage. And the man reveals that he has a secret crush on another man, the, the second man. And this is meant to be a huge shock because like, ooh, a man having a crush on a man. I think even in trash TV, the gay rights movement has moved to such a point that it wouldn't be seen as something grotesque and embarrassing and horrifying as it was on the Jenny Jones show. Um, and what happens in the story of the trial is that the recipient of the crush winds up killing the other guy hmm. because he's embarrassed him so much. That just illustrates, I think, how much society has changed. Because I think even in trash TV, the idea that a, the guy who's a recipient of a male crush would be so embarrassed that he'd go out and kill the other guy is, um, I think, fortunately, uh, an artifact and would be at least somewhat different today. Um, the, the other thing that, that I thought was so revealing in that trial is that the defense sort of put Jenny Jones on trial. Yes. They, they said, you exploited these vulnerable people. You put them in this awful situation 
solely for the benefit of your ratings. And Jenny Jones' testimony in the trial is really excruciating because she's an awful witness. Yes, (laughs) she really is. She doesn't acknowledge anything about what she was really doing. She doesn't acknowledge that they were exploiting these people for ratings. Um, And um, it needs to be said that even though they were exploiting these people, that didn't give Jonathan Schmidt's the right to kill somebody. But it was a clever defense strategy to try to shift the blame for this event onto Jenny Jones. And as a viewer, you think to yourself, well, you know, you sort of have a point there because none of this would have happened but for the uh, intercession of these amoral television people. The episode also reveals this um, meta layer of kind of the rise of court TV. And, you know, court TV was owned by the same production house that owned the Jenny Jones show. And here they are making money by broadcasting this high profile trial that is about them in some ways. It's like this very meta situation. Right. It, it was that was a kind of surreal confluence uh, of events. One of my co-executive producers on this uh, series is Steve Brill, who was the creator of Court TV and um, and also the creator of the American Lawyer magazine and someone who really is kind of the founding father of American legal journalism, the field in which I work. And it was actually Steve's idea to do this case, even though, you know, it, it doesn't make Court TV look all that great either because they were covering the trial because it was salacious and interesting and complicated and dramatic. And isn't that the what got everyone in this problem in the first place? You know, I, I think the line between covering a story, creating a story, and uh, exploiting a story is is not that easy to define. And 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 I think, you know, we're 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 pretty honest about that in the series. Probably the episode that illustrates that best is uh, the episode about the new Bedford rape case, a really famous case that probably a lot of people have forgotten about unless they've seen the Jodie Foster film Accused, which is uh, the case that is the basis for that fictional film. That case was nationally televised, that trial. The judge made the decision to put cameras in the courtroom. Uh, There's the moment where the victim's name and address is said out loud in court and therefore broadcast on national television. Do you think the gavel-to-gavel coverage in a case like this does change the outcome or the aftermath of a case like this? Well, you know, as someone who... Uh, for better or for worse, you know, made his career covering the O.J. Simpson case. Um, you know, I, I have thought a lot about the issues of cameras in the courtroom, and um, <clears throat> I recognize the, the the complexities of the issue. But I still come down very strongly on the side that we should have cameras in courtrooms. Hmm. That what goes on in these courtrooms is the public's business. Uh, these trials are conducted in the public's name. And yes, there are potential for bad things to happen. But the answer is not to keep these things secret. And the answer that, well, you know, newspaper reporters can sit in there and take notes. You know, in the modern world, that's just not 
journalism. Right. And um, in the modern world, journalism means uh, video access, whether mm. it's now on the internet or on, on television. And uh, I, 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 the, the camera was not guilty, either in the OJ case or the Big Dan's case, which is this, uh, this rape case. Um, the problem is the substance of what really went on. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I, as far as I, I feel, the camera pleads not guilty. Well, one of the other themes that comes up in the documentary is in the episode about Amadou Diallo, a very famous police shooting in New York where a young man was shot 41 times by officers. He was unarmed and um, he was immediately branded as a victim as an African street peddler or an immigrant street peddler. He was sort of given as a victim an identity that branded him the victim who, by the way, was killed by being shot and unarmed uh, throughout the case that then there was this, you know, media push by his mother in particular and by activists in New York to reverse some of that branding. But I think one of the legacies of that case is something we still see in 2020, right? That is sort of immediate branding of victims of police violence. Absolutely. Well, you know, of all the trials in this series, that's the one I covered most closely. I was in the courtroom the whole time. And I'm interviewed in the documentary. And so, I, I mean, th- th- this is one that is, that is very close to my heart. And I mean, if we can just go back to the issues of cameras in the courtroom, the Diallo case was a great advertisement. And I mean this sincerely for cameras in the courtroom, because everybody thought going into that trial that, oh, they shot him 41 times. It was inexcusable. The police were, I mean, this was just a... a, a total outrage, indefensible, cold-blooded murder. Well, what happened was people saw the officers testify Mm. and they went through what happened that night point by point. And I not only did the jury find the officers uh, not guilty, the community was more sympathetic to what went on. Not that Mm. they thought uh, the verdict was necessarily the right one. And I'm not even sure I think the verdict, they, the officers were acquitted. But you had a chance to see for yourself as a viewer that there was an explanation for what happened, that the officers were traumatized and horrified by what they had done. They did not sit out to kill Amadou Diallo. Um, they did not you know, want this, this to happen. Now, um, that's not necessarily to excuse them or or to think that this was anything but an absolute tragedy. The the fact that everyone got to see the verdict, see the, the, the testimony in the trial, I think was one of the reasons the city reacted calmly to the verdict. You know, a lot of people were worried that if there was an acquittal, there'd be riots, like in the Rodney King case in, in, in Los Angeles, where there were acquittals of police officers after the verdict in the, in the state case. There were no riots here, in, in part, I think, because people saw the trial and they saw that once you got into the details, it was a lot more complicated than just 41 shots. I mean, I I found myself wondering, of course, you know, these police officers had great defense as well. And, you know, 
probably, and again, of course, I don't think anybody woke up that morning thinking we're going to shoot an unarmed young black man, but that was the strategy. I mean, the lawyer talked about that being the strategy, is that they need to get up there, tell their story. We even saw a TV analyst, not unlike yourself, saying after you know the prosecution presented their case, here's what needs to happen next. We need to see those cops crying. We need to see them feeling really bad. And if they do, that is the only way they can come out ahead. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seemed real, but it also seemed strategically smart, right? I, no question. And, you know, one of, one of the issues raised by the whole series is how much of what goes on in courtrooms is a search for truth and how much is, you know, theater that is choreographed by the lawyers. And, that is, frankly, an interesting and in some cases a fun question to ask yourself. I mean, you know, just, you know, on one extreme, you have uh, the Scrooge case with this total phony baloney um, <laughs> civil rights activism of Richard Scrooge. On the other hand, you have uh, the testimony of uh, the police officers in the Diallo case, which, you know, perhaps I'm wrong struck me as sincere and and heartfelt and and truthful but again one of the interesting things about the series is it lets viewers decide and i'm sure other people will watch and come to different conclusions but but that fundamental question of what goes on in a courtroom is one that is really posed by virtually every one of these stories Well, Jeffrey Tubin, I've never quite seen a documentary from this point of view before, the intersection of media and high-profile cases. I loved it. I loved every episode. I loved every minute of every episode. I can't thank you enough for talking to me about it and giving me your thoughts kind of under the hood of some of these stories. So thanks so much. Thanks, Rebecca. We've reached the end of this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey is chief legal analyst at CNN and staff writer at The New Yorker. He's also a prolific author of books on politics, true crime, and the Supreme Court. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it on the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. And if you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on the documentary, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and thanks so much for listening.